0: Here's what I know in uh, in September of 2022, that a a, a biblical anthropology, that's not the same as sophomore anthropology at a college somewhere. From a theological viewpoint, a biblical anthropology has at least two characteristics. We have to understand two things about man, at least, or we don't understand man biblically. The first thing we have to understand about man is that man is the only created component of God's spectacular, enormous, diverse creation. Man is the only thing in all of God's creation that is created in his image. We are the image bearers. Now, there are libraries of books that have been written about what, what, what does it mean to be created in the image of God? And years and years ago, an uh, Old Testament professor that I loved gave me, gave us, a class I was in, his perspective on the key characteristics of the image of God. I've never forgotten them. And I, I, I would embrace this. I think this is correct. I, would, I don't think it's inarguable. But when you think, all right, what is it? It doesn't mean that God physically resembles us because we don't physically resemble each other all that much. We do in, in basic morphology and such, but... The image of God is not simply that God has two eyes and a nose, two ears and a chin, you know, that's... They are, they are character characteristics. And I believe, I believe you can at least these three. Number one, creativity. God is the creator. But we, we human beings, most everybody, likes to create something. Maybe you're a spectacular cook. Maybe you like building things. Maybe you like painting. Maybe you like writing. Even people who would say, well, I'm not creative. If you watch their life for a couple of weeks, you'll see there is creative impulse. I think, present in the nature of man. Um, my, my favorite fiction author is, is Tolkien. I'm a huge Tolkien fan. And Tolkien called his work, he called it sub-creation. Um, I don't know that Tolkien was a believer. He was at least a very strong theist. And he, he, he respected the unique creator, the living God, enough not to call himself a creator. But in his writing, he said, I subcreate. I, I create things from my own imagination as a subcreator. So, creativity. Second, immortality. Now, you, you are unlike God in that God has existed forever and you have not. So, you do not have the infinitude of God. You are not infinite in both directions. But, from the time you came into being at conception, from there forward, you are immortal. You will never cease to be. You will never cease to be you into eternity going forward. I believe that is a reflection of the image of God. The third is capacity for morality. If you know me, you know I am, uh, I am a dog enthusiast. I, uh, I, I am very, very fond of my dogs. And I am continually amazed at the empathetic capacity of dogs. If you, if you have dogs in your life and you love dogs, you know that they will reflect your mood back at you. If you don't feel well, they will know it. And, and respond to you differently. There's all kinds of things about dogs. Um, neither of my dogs right now is a, is, a, is, a, is a complete Labrador retriever. I have one that's a mix, that's got some lab in him. But my, uh, I once had a dog, I had a dog for 11 years, 12 years, that was a full out, big, yellow, American field lab. And when you scolded, his name was Bobo. When you scolded Bobo, he would shrink and wince. You've seen it, the the dramatic lab. Go to YouTube and do a search for dramatic labs. They all do it. It is not that they are aware that they have committed moral evil. A dog, and I am a dog person, but a dog does not have the capacity to discern that he has committed moral evil. He's detecting that you are not happy with him, and he doesn't like it. But he's not going, oh my, they found out that I opened the hot dog wrapper and ate all the hot dog buns yet again. Therefore, I am in deep remorse over my behavior. However, in all human civilization, to take something that is not yours, is known to be wrong. In spite of the fact, by the way, that often taking that which is not yours would yield specific evolutionary advantages. Naturalistic evolutionism would ascribe the stealing of things to evolutionary advantage would be seen as a good, not an evil. And yet, all human beings have baked into the circuits barring some sort of mental-emotional illness, that taking stuff that's not yours is wrong. Where's that come from? That moral awareness, that capacity for fairly sophisticated moral reasoning, I believe is a characteristic of the image of God. So you must remember, if you're going to have a biblical view of man, that the human beings are the image bearers, in at least creativity, immortality, capacity for morality, true morality. However, and this, by the way, is why we we tell our children they are unique and special and they matter because they do. They are image bearers. Also, we are horrifically corrupted. We are broken. We are fallen. And we have been plunged into utter ruin by the inherited consequences of the actions of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Not only us, but all of creation. The effects of the fall are cosmic and universal, as well as profoundly personal. No parent ever had to teach a child how to be selfish. No parent ever had to teach a child how to lie. No parent ever had to teach a child to, to be sneaky and demanding. And I'm not, you say, well, you're saying terrible things about my, my ch- not my grandchildren. No, I've got grandchildren myself now. And they come with all those things built in. They, they have the capacity for moral reasoning, but they act in immoral ways without any training. Because the capacity for... Sin is is hardwired into the present human condition. When a secular psychologist says, children are born a clean slate until they learn good and evil behavior, hogwash. Whoever says that never raised a child, or I do not want to be around the child they raised. You don't either, right? Romans 8, 19 through 22, says it like this. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation, everything, was subjected to, this is Romans 8, I started it in verse 19. Creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Man is broken, corrupted, and eagerly participates in the furthering of his own corruption. One could say, man, when I meet Adam, I'm going to put a finger in his face for what he did to all of us. You could say that, except I suspect you and I both know that given his same situation, we'd have probably done the same thing. Another another foundational thing we've got to remember is that both God's mercy and his grace, which are always consistent with his justice, we'll get to some of this, but they are are always also governed by his providence. Only a person in a position of, of moral and judicial superiority. Only a person in moral and judicial superiority can be the issuer of mercy and grace. You don't believe me, walk up to somebody with whom you are only casually acquainted. Not a good enough friend to look you back in the eye and say, what are you talking about? Just walk up to somebody and say, I'll tell you what I'm gonna do, man. Tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to show you mercy this time. Yeah. Except it's kind of offensive. I I, I know in this setting it probably isn't. But try that on the street. Buddy, I tell you what I'm going to do for you this time. I'm going to show you mercy. That's really, really offensive. Unless I am prepared to concede the judicial superiority Now, if the judge says it to me in a courtroom, I like hearing it. But if a stranger walks up to me on the street and offers me mercy, pardon me, but who do you think you are? So his his capacity to extend mercy and grace is rooted in his sovereign position. And the means and the occasions of his demonstrating mercy and grace are subject to his providence. Um, Paul asked the rhetorical question in Romans 9, 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? And the answer is by no means. God is never the violator of justice, ever. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. That is, in the sway of my providence. He's quoting Exodus thirty-three nineteen. 19. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it, and it is the, the human created being experiencing grace or mercy, it depends not on human will or effort. ESV says exertion. I like that. But on God who has mercy. So, for tonight, since I was assigned the topics of mercy and grace, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do... A, I'm, um, you know how a, how, a, how a dentist who wants to work on the back teeth and where's Craig? Craig's in the room. Oh, this is bad. I'm using a dental. All right, Craig, you got to forgive me my bad terminology. OK, sometimes when a dentist needs to work on your back teeth longer than you can hold your mouth open, sometimes he'll put in an appliance to help stretch things out. Maybe in a, certainly in an anesthetized dental procedure. Craig's looking at me like that's so not right. Pretend it's true. <laughs> oh, yes, it is. It is true. Yay. All right. Grace and mercy have a ton of overlap. The fact of God's mercy could be seen as an extension of his grace operative in creation. But since they, they, are, they are dealt with as separate attributes, what I'm going to do, if I can, is I'm going I'm to put a brace between them. And I'm going I'm to wrench them apart a bit and differentiate them Perhaps a bit more than they usually travel. They usually travel as a pretty close pairing. But in order that we can look at them separately and sort of see each of their distinctives, I'm going to pry them apart a little bit. So if you catch yourself through the course of the next little bit saying, what he's describing as as mercy kind of sounds like grace. Or if you catch me going, what he's describing as grace sort of sounds like mercy. I've admitted it on the front end. I'm sort of of forcing them apart a little bit for the sake of being able to define them separately. Let me start with mercy. If you're an outliner, this is Roman numeral one here 20 minutes in. Not unusual for me. (laughs) Roman numeral one, God's mercy. Here's the definition. The attribute of God whereby he withholds or postpones the full and just expression of his wrath. His mercy is his postponing or withholding the full expression of his wrath. That's why a random offer of mercy is offensive because the offer of mercy assumes I have reason and means to unleash my wrath on you and I'm choosing not to. The inferior does not offer mercy to the superior. So to offer mercy is to claim the judicially superior position. Seven times in the ESV, his mercy is linked to his being slow to anger. He is said to be merciful and slow to anger seven times in the Old Testament. Uh, once in Exodus, once in Nehemiah, three times in Psalms, once in Joel, and once in Jonah. In all cases, the, the voice that's saying it is either the, the, the narrator voice, so to speak, or the voice of, of a, a prophet in a prophetic setting. So his, his mercy and his slowness to anger are linked. His, his mercy is universally Displayed. Psalm 145. Psalm 145. Um, remember, we are profoundly corrupt by nature. We are, we are conceived with a sin nature, and as soon as we get around to it, we express that sin nature in sinful behavior. His condemnation is always just. We've said this before, but if anybody ever wants to hit you with what they, what they think is the profound philosophical issue of, of bad things happening to good people, that'll bounce off a biblical worldview like a Super Bowl off a concrete wall because there's no such thing as a good person. You can't can't question why bad things happen to good people in this universe, a universe that lacks good people. Doesn't mean that all people are as bad as they could be. I'm not going to accuse you of kidnapping and murdering anybody. Though for some of you, the jury's still out. Um, (laughs) But it does mean that a God of pure justice would not flinch to see all of us condemned to hell immediately. His justice would not be impunable, his holiness would not be impunable, his character would not have to change. We said, well, yeah, I'm born again. Set that aside for a moment. We're talking about in your own intrinsic nature. Therefore, his mercy is constantly on display in that we're not in hell. Nobody you hung out with today, unless they have passed away since y'all hung out, nobody you hung out with today is in hell. That is the Active expression of his mercy. Because they deserve to be. You deserve to be, and I deserve to be. Remember, hell is the withholding or postponing of his just wrath. Psalm 145 8 and 9. The Lord is gracious and merciful. Slow to anger. Remember, I told you, merciful and slow to anger travel together. And abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all. And His mercy is over all that He has made. Yeah. Yeah. Because there are people who live. And there are people who in their ongoing sin of ingratitude are newly participating in eternally condemnable behavior every moment of their lives. Again, the absolute justice of God, I I know we talked about the justice of God last week, the justice of God is inflexible. It is absolute. If God could could simply flex his justice, then the sacrifice of Christ on the cross must be motivated by some sort of sadistic impulse. If that horrible necessity was other than necessary, only his holy zeal to keep his justice intact necessitates. Substitutionary atonement, the payment of Christ on the cross for sinners, if he's going to save anybody. If he could just, you know what, it's not that big a deal. Let me give it a pass. Then he saw the death of the Christ, the death of the Son on the cross as what? Amusing? But his mercy, his mercy extends over all that he has made. Because no human being has the right to expect another moment of life outside of hell. I am often reminded by the Holy Spirit who loves me When I get pouty or self-pitying, that every moment of every day is being lived out in a context of His mercy, let alone His grace. We'll get to grace. But mercy has stayed His righteous, judgmental hand. And as you sit here tonight, so it has for you. No small thing. His mercy is inexhaustible for now. If he he would desire to keep the lights on, that would be okay with me too. Lamentations 3, beginning in verse 19. and I already warned you that if you have your Bible app, crack your knuckles. And if you... If you have your Bible Bible, I I, I cheat. I, I, showed, I showed somebody there before, my, before we started. That's the verses I'm going to tonight. And so I have, I have gone in advance and, and made cheating thumb tabs for myself so that my bad depth perception and awkward, uncoordinated hands wouldn't slow me down. Lamentations 3, 19 through 24. The prophet cries out, Remember my affliction and my wanderings, my wormwood, or the wormwood and the gall, my soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. In other words, from the context, the flow of all the discourse of chapter 3, I'm really not having a good time. Verse 21, but this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. This I call to mind and therefore I have hope. What? What do you call to mind for hope? Well, verse 22, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. Some Hebrew manuscripts say because of his mercies we are not cut off. Um, his mercy is new, that his mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in him. You know, it's almost a, an Internet meme joke that every day when the alarm goes off, you should be thankful that you can get up. And, and I, I get the ha-ha of that, you know, old people telling each other, wow, looks like I, you know, I'm alive one more day. But there's something to that. There's something to that business of, of waking up in the morning. There certainly can be no claim to the right to wake up in the morning. Center your worldview in biblical anthropology. Center your self-expectations, self-perception, and sense of entitlement, if any, in the absolute that all you deserve today is hell. And the rest is a combination of mercy and grace. doesn't mean you can't speak to the waiter when your steak is cooked wrong. But what it does mean is you don't live in a world where you automatically deserve to have a correctly cooked steak. So well, I paid my money. Which money you didn't deserve either. Be, 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 be kind and patient when the steak's not right. And don't. Now, you, you see my point. This mercy, this characteristic of his, is supposed to be copied and emulated in his people. Jesus told a parable in Matthew 18, beginning in verse 21. This is a parable about mercy. This is a parable about mercy. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven, I'll start in verse 23 when the parable actually starts. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, y'all know, because you're at a Wednesday night pastor's Bible study at McGregor, a talent in, in New Testament usage is not a gift or ability. Like, I, I, have, a, I have a real talent for something. A talent is a sum of money. Not a a tiny amount. It's a decent decent little sum of money. Hold him a bunch of money. Tidy sum times 10,000. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. That is the just Prerogative of the master, of the king, to whom the debt is owed. If that were the end of the story right there, everybody in the whole crowd listening to Jesus share this parable would say, yup, that's how it works. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. That is mercy. He withheld the just expression of his wrath. That lesson is supposed to get observed and learned by those to whom mercy is shown. If the parable stopped right there, the takeaway would be, what a master. What!" What a thing that such forgiveness can be had. How remarkable is that? One, one must cry out for forgiveness. Got it. Good. Parable does not end there. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a 100 denarii. Now that's 100 days wages. So that's not a tiny, tiny amount either. But it's nothing compared to 10,000 talents. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him. Does that sound familiar? Have patience with me and I will pay you. But he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. He didn't learn. The object of mercy failed to become the granter of mercy. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And when his master, which is the, the king from verse 23, the initial giver of great mercy, when his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? That's the punchline of the parable. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. And in case we missed the punchline, Jesus said, So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. The point being that the mercy that has been extended to you is absolutely far greater than any mercy you will ever be called upon to extend. Because no... Hmm. I'm sure I word this right. No human being has the capacity to be as offensive to you. And I know the world is populated with potentially offensive human beings. But no human being has the capacity to be as offensive to you as you have been to God. Your debt is greater because of the absolute holiness and utter love of the one whom you have offended. And yet he has shown you. There's there's little of grace in this parable. There's nothing in this parable where the, the servant receives something he did not earn. What he gets is forgiveness and the forbearance of wrath. So this is not really about grace. This is about mercy. So, Embrace mercy. <laughs> it's, one of those, it's one of those, not every attribute of God is one that you're supposed to say, okay, I get it, because God is omniscient, I'm supposed to learn everything I possibly can about everything. I am to emulate the omniscience of God. No, you aren't. You can't. I know, because God is omnipotent, I need to learn to move really, really quickly so I can be in multiple places at once. No, you aren't. You can't. But the mercy of God is a transferable attribute of his. And while we cannot demonstrate it to the endless degree he does, we are not justified. We don't, we, don't, we have not been as horrifically and, and boundlessly offended as he has been. We bring, we bring little mercy to our little circumstances in An emulation and honor of the grand mercy that he has brought to his. That's mercy. Let's talk for a few minutes about grace. I had done some work on grace, and I had two different concepts that were interwoven. And I am, I am, I am grateful to my, my friend and brother, David Miller, who in a conversation this morning said, you know, you might, you might want to consider pulling common grace and saving grace sort of pulling them apart a bit, and you might, you might find a bit more clarity. And I don't know if you knew how timely that suggestion was. Uh, it helps. So first, let me talk about common grace. I, re, I reorganized my notes, and suddenly they looked organized. First thing we want to do when we talk about grace, even common grace, there's, an, there's another really important parable. Um... And the parable I just read is in Matthew 18 regarding mercy. This parable is in Matthew 20. Grace, again, is is under the sway of his providence. and Grace is always compatible with justice. God will never be successfully accused of injustice. However. And for those of us who are who are steeped in our North American culture and our sort of culturally driven ideas of what's right and wrong, what I'm about to say may cause you to go, "How can you say that?" Well, we'll read the parable in a minute. Here it comes. Here's the idea. Grace is quite often not fair. Grace is quite often not fair as we would typically, you know, if I get one kid an ice cream cone, I've got to get every kid in the class an ice cream cone, idea of fairness. Doesn't work like that. And Jesus told a a story that very clearly demonstrates that his conduct, the living God's conduct, is to be viewed through the lens of, of, of justice and grace, not fairness. If you're a huge fan of fairness, this parable is not going to sit well with you. Especially if you slow down and put yourself in it. Matthew 20, starting in the first verse. This is a parable about grace and justice. It is not a parable about fairness. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, that's the usual day's wages, he sent them into his vineyard. Perfectly just arrangement. You're going to work for me for a day. I'm going to pay you a day's wage. The wages that you have earned are the wages you will receive. All is well. Going out about the third hour, 9 o'clock in the morning or so, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace and said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going in about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. He went back at noon and recruited more. He went back at three and recruited three in the afternoon and did the same. And about the eleventh hour, at 5 p.m., he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too. Do you understand the picture? Do you understand that there are some folks that have been working out there since about dawn? Do you understand the folks who've been working out there since about dawn have an agreement with the master that they have become parties to? It is a just agreement. Okay, don't lose that. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last, up to the first. And when those hired about 5 p.m. came, each of them received a whole day's pay. Whoa, did you hear that? The one, he's paying a denarius per hour. How many hours we put in? About 12. Yes. Now, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. That ain't fair. That is not fair. You don't have to say it is. It isn't. As, as in a world where if, 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 one, if one kid gets an ice cream cone, everybody has to get an ice cream cone. That's not what just happened. They got the justly agreed upon amount. They were not treated unjustly. Each of them also received the denarius. And on receiving it, surprise, surprise, they grumbled at the master of the house. Of course they did. Saying, these last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Paraphrasing: you have not been treated unjustly. You have no justice to back your complaint. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. You have no basis to complain. I choose to give to this last worker as I gave to you. That's grace. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? That's providence. Or do you begrudge my generosity? That's envy. Covetousness. Number 10 on the top 10 list. The 10th commandment. Don't covet. So there we see perfectly good illustrations of grace, justice, and covenant. Lord, you're treating them better than you treated me and that's not fair. Oh yeah, that pesky Matthew 20 parable warns me against expecting fair. So the last will be first and the first last. Common grace. Roman numeral 2, letter A. Common grace is His unearned giving of good gifts. See, not only do you remain alive today, you probably had something pretty good, or certainly at least decently acceptable, given that we're not together in a concentration camp. You probably had something pretty good for lunch today. Now, maybe you didn't. Maybe you skipped lunch, or maybe you took a shot at lunch and it didn't work out right. But I suspect you had something reasonably to your liking for lunch today. Ultimately from his hand. There might, be, there might be a chain of cause and effect that he used to deliver it to you that involved you know your work and a drive-through somewhere or a restaurant somewhere or a kitchen somewhere or a fruit tree somewhere. But you have no right to claim that lunch you had. That lunch is common grace. Meanwhile, you breathed perfectly good air all day. Maybe you got stuck behind some diesel bus with your vents open, and for a minute the air got a little weird. But whatever it was, you got over it. Here you sit. Gravity held you to the planet again today. You think that's an accident? Richard, we were talking about briefly, water at dinner. Water did for you what water is supposed to do, all day, again today. And we got a lot more to spare that fell out of the sky at six o'clock or so. Matthew 5:45. Matthew 5:45 B, the, the latter part. Jesus is teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. And he makes this statement, for he, speaking of of the Father, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Some farmer somewhere today needed rain badly. And though that farmer theoretically is, is godless and lives in contempt of God, nonetheless, the rain came and saved his crop today. He didn't have any right to that. He has no just claim to it. And yet, because of common grace, God sent it. A very close parallel to the Matthew 5, in, in Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount, Luke 6.35, says, he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. That's common grace. He is kind to the to the ungrateful and the evil. If you sometimes, as a believer, wonder why he, in his arrangement of circumstances, seems to be treating some unbelievers better than he's treating believers, it is common grace. And guard yourself against envy in how he distributes his common grace. Paul, preaching in Lystra, In Acts 14, verse 17. It's talking about God's movement in history with the nations. And he says to the people of Lystra in Acts 14, 17, Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Music works. That's common grace. That there is such a thing as music. That that not all of broken mankind's creative expressions are utterly foul. There are admirable works of art and admirable works of literature. Things. The restraint of sin. We, we, we live in a world that is as corrupt and broken as it is, and yet it's altogether likely that you won't get shot between now and going to bed. People do, and I'm not making light of it. But a huge number of people don't. That's the remarkable thing, by the way. The evil of mankind is never remarkable. It can be shocking, it can be heartbreaking, but I was just surprised that anybody could do that. Really? Really? Spent much time in the Old Testament narratives lately? We ain't found the floor of what human beings are capable of. But people plant flowers and I get to walk through my neighborhood with my dogs on the leash and go, wow, that looks really good. Hey, man, thanks. You must you must take your gardening pretty seriously. Yeah, I'm retired now and it's what I do. Man, good for you. Just don't let my wife see it. And five or six houses down from me, I don't know the state of his soul. But I know that he's he's creating beauty in his yard. It's common grace. That he has both the capacity and the impulse. And again, the restraint of sin. While this grace, this common grace, reveals much of God's character, there are flashes of God's character visible because of common grace, It it is not the case that evil man will respond to common grace with repentance and faith. Common grace won't save. It condemns. the, The awareness, the ability to perceive the movement of God in common grace adds to the condemnation of sinful men. Romans 1 explains it like this. For what can be known about God, this is Romans 1 beginning in verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God (laughs) has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. His common grace is visible in his creation. Sunsets, wow, sunrises, wow. The heavens declare the glory of God. Everywhere they are visible. Wow. They are without excuse. Who is they? Anyone who perceives. Anyone with the capacity to perceive. Common grace. But it doesn't save. So Roman numeral two, letter B, saving grace. Saving grace is his forgiving and accepting his people as his own based on the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ. His forgiving and accepting his people as his own based on the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ. Otherwise, justice is violated, and justice cannot be violated. The penalty for sin must be paid remember it's 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 not it's not that we start at neutral we you and i didn't start adam the case could be made maybe started at neutral there's a lot of, of theology about the 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 relationship between adam's original created state and the fact that god had foreknown and planned for the redemption of mankind in light of adam's sin there's a lot going on there and it makes my head hurt good news is I don't have to figure all that out because I'm not in the Garden of Eden responsible to keep score. I'm in Fort Myers in 2022, and human beings are not neutral. They are corrupt and predisposed to sin. Sinners by nature and by action. We simply, it is not simply that we do not deserve heaven. It is that we actively and belligerently deserve hell. It's not that we're, "Wow, here I am in my position of carefully balanced neutrality, and some temptation things appeal to me and pull me this way. But some things of God appeal to me and pull me that way." There's a, there's a component that shows up in a lot of the world system's philosophies. It's called dualism, the yin, the yang, that that there is evil and good out there in essentially equal balance. Sometimes I've heard well-meaning Christians say, God votes for you, Satan votes against you, your vote makes a difference. Who do you think you are? How about this? Satan and you have been in cahoots against the living God, thumbing your nose at him and showing him active contempt since the moment of your conception. But God, who is rich in mercy and grace, extends grace in spite of that belligerence toward Him to all who will repent and believe. You're not—you're not some cosmic tiebreaker. You're you're buried beyond your head in non-neutrality against God. And it is out of that that he saved you by his grace. Saving grace does not give you the capacity to make a good decision in a tiebreaker situation. You, you, You are simply not understanding grace if that is your position. And I know it isn't. Ephesians 2 one through three. There's a reason that classic and oft-quoted passages become classic and oft-quoted passages. This is our state. We were dead and you, he says, to the members of the Ephesian church, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, dead man walking, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's not neutrality. Right? That's profound antipathy toward God. Romans 5. Verses 6 through 8. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The basis of his grace is the application to us of the righteousness of Christ as Christ stood in the place of the recipient of wrath for us on the cross we are transformed remember mercy requires of us that we demonstrate mercy Grace both provides for and requires of us that we walk in transformed reality it's a paradox that it both requires it and provides it but Romans 6: in my Bible, on the opposite page of where I was just reading. Romans 6, 12 through 14 says it like this. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. That's the requirement. Let me show you the paradox. Verse 14, I'll fast forward. I'll read the whole thing, but skip ahead for a moment verse 14. For sin will have no dominion over you. So verse 12 lays out the requirement and the expectation Verse 14 positively states the provision. Don't let this happen. By the way, it won't. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. And that is not a statement of chronological dispensation. That is a statement of your present condition. Your relationship to God is not bound by rules and regs. Your relationship to God is bound by his love for you demonstrated in his transforming grace, which if it is not transforming you, it is not present. If it's not transforming you. You've not been impacted by it. And if you've received it, you've been impacted by it. So. Mercy. You ain't dead yet. Common Grace. Lunch today was pretty good, and I didn't deserve that. Saving grace—that in spite of the deep hole I am in by both nature and conduct—he has loved and saved me, and will save all who will repent. Well, now wait a minute, Russell. I thought you said his grace was under the control of his providence. He's quite big. And He will save all who will repent and He will save all toward whom He extends His saving grace, who are all who will repent, who are those to whom He extends His saving grace. If you find the bottom of that particular pool, it must be shallower for you than it is for me.